clear so far? Questions? Okay. Glands produce hormones. What are the hormones? Hormones are chemicals. Chemicals that are specific. They have a specific molecular structure. Bring in some things from 40A and 40B. We studied in 40A, we studied the uh, enzymes, and we say they work as a lock and the key. They have specific sites. Otherwise, the chemical reaction will not happen. Well, in this case, we use the same concept because the hormones, they have a specific molecular structure, and they are going to work on cells only if there is a receptor on that cell which is specific for that hormone. As we see in this diagram, this hormone has this particular shape, and there is a shape here in the receptor in blue, the shape that will fit exactly the shape of the molecule uh, of the hormone. And that is in the cell membrane. That's how the hormones work. There are specific for our specific receptors. For instance, we have a gland called pituitary gland. And this pituitary gland produces a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone that circulates in the blood and works, main action, on the cells of the uterus. So, if oxytocin is found in the blood circulation of the female, it will work on the uterus. But in the male, there's no uterus, so it will not work. There is no, there is no uterus in, in the male. It has to be specific, otherwise it will not work. And below we have this diagram showing the same thing. We see a secreting cell producing and releasing the hormone, and this cell which has the receptor for that hormone is called target cell. Secreting cell from the gland and the target cell, the ones that have the receptor specific for that hormone. That's usually the term that we use. When we talk about thyroid gland, for instance, we say, what are the target cells of the thyroid hormone? And we need to identify what are those cells. In the case of the example that I mentioned, oxytocin. What is the target cell for oxytocin? The cells of the uterus, because they have the receptor for that hormone. If the cell doesn't have receptors, well, that's, that's not a target cell. There are some problems and uh, uh, congenital problems where uh, people have no receptors for some hormones. And, of course, they don't show the effects of the hormone, even though the hormone is there in the blood, but the cells, they, they have no target cells for the hormone because of a congenital problem where receptors are not developed well. More about the hormones. The hormones are chemicals that are all the time being synthesized and broken down. All the time they're produced. There are patterns of secretion during the day. For instance, the adrenal gland, which is next on top of the kidney, releases, produces and releases a hormone called cortisol. And this cortisol is produced 24 hours a day. 
continuously being produced. And there is a specific pattern for the secretion of cortisol that changes along the day. There is more secretion of this during the morning, and then declines by the beginning of the afternoon, and then it declines more by the end of the day. And that has a specific impact on the mood, for instance. In the morning, usually, we, are, we feel very active with uh, will and a lot of energy. But then after in the afternoon, we are like, by this time, we are declining. We're declining. We feel well, but not so much. And even later, we need much effort. That has to do with the secretion of cortisol in many cases. So all the time being produced and broken down because they work and they are removed. Now, receptors. The receptors in the same way. They are always being produced and broken down because the target cells need that. So the response will be uh, appropriate. And there are some uh, two things that happens in the receptors. These two particular characteristics of the receptors that may be downregulated in the presence of high concentrations of hormone, or they may be upregulated in the presence of low concentrations of hormone. How this happens? Again, more examples of this. An example of downregulation. The receptors may be responding not so well when there is a high concentration of hormone because they get kind of used to the high levels of hormones. There's an adaptation. In the same way, they are upregulated in the presence of low concentration of hormone. Let's say if someone has a very low amount of a hormone, as a reaction, the cells will produce more receptors to get the maximum advantage of the small amount of hormone that is in the, in the blood. And the downregulation, since there is too much of the hormone circulating, not many receptors are needed. And so they are downregulated. The number of receptors are less in number. This happens for insulin, which is a hormone from the pancreas. It happens with oxytocin, like in the uterus, the example that I mentioned and in some other glands that we'll mention along the way also. Now the hormones, they can be classified in different ways. One of the ways is depending on the way of action, how they work. Some of them, they are called autocrine, because they are local hormones, they are produced, secreted, and they work on the same cell. As you see in the diagram, the cell is producing the hormone, and the hormone works on the cell itself. The same cell has receptors for that hormone. This happens in immune system. In immune system, we have cells that have this uh, particular way of uh, production of hormones. The term hormone actually means messenger. It's a chemical. It's a chemical substance of different, different uh, structure. We will classify the hormones according to the chemical structures. So that's autocrine. The same, it works on the same cell, the same cell that produces the hormone. The other type of hormones are called paracrine. 
they're also local. They're secreted by the cells and it work. It works on nearby cells and neighbor cells. The diagram is showing this, how this happens. Again, this may be seen in the immune system. When the immune system works in response to an infection, when we are fighting against bacteria, for instance, one of the cells of the immune system comes and fights bacteria. But when another type of cell comes down and to help, well, the first cell will produce some chemicals, and those chemicals will stimulate the second cell to start helping with the fight. So that's a paracrine hormone, a paracrine secretion. It works in the neighbor, nearby cell. And the endocrine hormones. This is what we're going to do most in this endocrine system. This is the type of hormones that we will describe in more, most of the glands that we're going to study, endocrine hormones. They are secreted first to the interstitial fluid and then absorbed to the bloodstream. And from the blood will be carried everywhere, all over the body. It will circulate everywhere. And it will work wherever there is a target cell that will respond. This endocrine cell may be a pancreas cell, for instance, and produces the hormone, which is insulin. And this insulin is released to the blood and it circulates and the target cells for insulin are, what are the target cells for insulin? Pancreas? Pancreas produces this insulin. And what are the target cells? The ones that have the receptors. The ones that are going to respond to the action of the insulin. Almost every single cell of the body. Because the insulin will make the glucose available and every single cell needs glucose for metabolism. Target cells for the insulin. And since it's almost every cell of the body, pancreas releases to the blood and skin cells, muscle, most of the cells, yes. So if you don't have uh, enough receptors, like if there's a whole bunch of like insulin just say in body, then you're gonna have less receptors. Does that make your body function like not as effectively? Yeah, that's correct. So because you know like if you eat a lot of sweets, you have to produce more insulin. So that means if you're eating like tons of sugar then less okay. That's a good example. It's a good observation because what happens for instance, what happens in, in obesity, people that have obesity Usually, most of them, they have diabetes, or at least high levels of glucose in the blood. So what happens there? The pancreas produces insulin. Let's say an average person produces 100 units of insulin, just to put a number, 100 units of insulin, which is, which is necessary to control the levels of glucose, normal levels. 
And that means to a determined amount of cells of the body. But if we gain weight and we increase tissue, adipose tissue, an excessive amount, like more than 20% of the weight of the body, then our pancreas will try to compensate first, increasing the amount of insulin that is produced, like up to 120, 150. And it may get adjusted, but at some point, if there is more tissue, more than 20%, 30% obesity, then the insulin will not be enough. There'll not be enough to work on all those cells. And what happens is that those cells, those cells will have like, and that's what we call it, deficiency of response. They don't respond to insulin because they don't have the enough amount of receptors. And that's the reason why many people with uh, overweight, not everyone, but many of them, they have high levels of sugar or glucose in the blood. And when they lose weight, diabetes is gone. That's one of the types of diabetes that can be corrected, especially related to obesity. They lose weight and that is controlled. And it all has to do with this. Amount of, amount of hormone produced, amount of receptors, balance, and the glands, they produce hormone, but they, they can adapt if there's more demand, but there's a limit. And when we go over that limit, then we may have uh, problems. Now let's see the hormones classified in, uh, according to the chemical structure and chemical properties. And we have two big groups of hormones. Lipid soluble and water soluble. And then the reason why we classify lipid soluble and water soluble is because we can describe or relate this to a specific function and we can say these are the hormones that are lipid soluble, this one are water soluble and work in different ways. They have different receptors. The receptors are located different different places of the cell. Like for instance, for lipid soluble, the receptors for these hormones are in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus of the cell. So the hormone has to go through the membrane, has to get inside the cell in order to bind the receptor. Water-soluble, the receptor for these hormones are located on the surface of the cell. That's the usefulness of this classification. It tells us where the receptors are. And what are those lipid-soluble hormones? Steroid hormones. Steroid hormones, thyroid hormones, which are produced by the thyroid gland. Steroid hormones are derived from the molecule of cholesterol, very important. We'll study these steroid hormones in a reproductive system like the testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, those are steroid hormones gas nitric oxide, which is considered a hormone, but at the same time a neurotransmitter. So all these three groups of hormones are lipid soluble, and remember the receptor is in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus.
This is the way that the lipid soluble hormones work. There is a requirement. There must be a carrier protein that transports this hormone in the blood because it's lipid soluble and the plasma is 97, 94% water. So it's like carrying a drop of fat in the water. It needs a carrier, a protein that it has to be soluble in water. So that, that's the way that these hormones travel in the blood, attached to a carrier protein. Once they get to the destination, means the target cell, they can go through the plasma membrane freely because the plasma membrane is lipid, phospholipid. And once inside, once inside, it will find receptors in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus. This is um, the way that these hormones work, the lipid soluble. Here we have the step-by-step. -step. The diagram is showing the hormone, free hormone, and the hormone attached to this protein, which is a carrier. That's the way it, it travels. And when it gets to the destination, this hormone diffuses across the membrane, and it will activate, in this case, the receptor is in the nucleus. It binds the receptor in the nucleus, and it's going to work on the DNA. What it does in the DNA, well, that's how the cell will express changes or change of function by producing proteins. So in DNA, what it stimulates is transcription, transcription and translation, which is a mechanism that we studied in 48 very early. DNA, genetic code, is transcribed into messenger RNA. The messenger RNA is read by the ribosomes, and the ribosomes produce specific proteins. This is the way that the lipid-soluble hormones work. The receptor in the nucleus, in this particular case, maybe in the cytoplasm, and in the nucleus it will stimulate the DNA to activate some specific function. And those proteins may be enzymes, may be a structure, maybe this is a cell from the bone, for instance, and it's just a, a kid. Well, this cell will start producing collagen, and that collagen will get into the connective tissue matrix, will get, get calcified, if calcium is in enough amounts, and start growing up. The bone starts growing. That's how this uh, receptor works, I mean, these hormones work. And the water-soluble, the water-soluble are these amine hormones, which are epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, histamine. You can recognize these neurotransmitters. We studied them as neurotransmitters in 40B nervous system. But it, they work as a hormone, as messenger also. Peptide hormones, protein hormones, like insulin, oxytocin, ADH, that stands for antidiuretic hormone. Eicosanoids, eicosanoids, 
are molecules that are considered hormones also, but they have a special role in inflammation, an inflammatory response, the eicosanoids. And they also work, um, are classified as water-soluble. The receptor is on the surface of the cell. Now, this type of water-soluble, they bind the receptor. This receptor on the surface of the target cell is called first messenger. It's first messenger, because usually what we see in this type of uh, cells, target cells, uh, the, this receptor on the surface will activate a series of mechanisms. And there is a first messenger, there's a second messenger, and even a third messenger. What are those? Are proteins that are attached to the receptor on the membrane of this target cell. So mechanism of action is a little different than the other lipid solid. The roster is going around. Where is it? Okay. Make sure you sign. Find your name and sign the roster. First messenger, hormone attaching the receptor, causes the production of a second messenger. Where's the second messenger? Inside the cell. And this second messenger is called cyclic AMP. The AMP stands for adenosine monophosphate. Cyclic because of the nature of the molecule, cyclic AMP. And this second messenger is going to activate a series of proteins that will start reacting as a cascade reaction, and they will end up in the specific function or a change in the function of the target cell. Neurotransmitters work in this way. Neuropeptides um, work with this mechanism of second messenger. And all that happens in the cytoplasm of the cell. And we have it here. At some point in 48, we mentioned the G protein mechanism. And this is mentioned here again. We have the hormone circulating in the blood. And then it binds the receptor on the surface of the cell. First messenger binding the receptor. And this receptor is attached to another proteins. In some cases, this is the system called G protein. This G protein will stimulate the production of the second messenger, the cyclic AMP, which derives from a molecule of ATP. And this cyclic AMP is going to activate a system called protein kinases. And these protein kinases, when they're activated, now they are going to usually change the, 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 the chemical structure of proteins, like adding one phosphate, that's what we see here, and in that way, and in that way will cause reactions that make a change in the function of the cell. So this mechanism will not get or reach the DNA of the, of the cell. It all happens in the cytoplasm.
So, target cell responds to a hormone, and we saw that different mechanisms. But the response of the target cell depends on some factors that are listed here. One of them is, and we talked about that, the amount of hormone in the blood. There's more hormone, of course, there will be more response, but there's a limit. The number of receptors, the number of receptors. The action will be depending on the number of receptors on the cell, the target cell. There may be influence by other hormones because sometimes the target cell has receptors for more than one hormone. And if other hormones are present, then we describe some effects that are listed in the last two bullets here. Synergistic effect. Some hormones work better if a second hormone is present. Synergistic. But the other effect, the opposite action may be present. If, the, if a second hormone is present, it may have an antagonistic effect. Which is not bad, it's sometimes for regulation. Insulin has an antagonistic hormone which is called glucagon. They have different effects. It's good because it helps to balance the glucose levels. Questions, comments to this point? Yes? During puberty, the production of testosterone or estrogens uh, will be more, in more amounts. Yeah. But at the same time, the receptors are developed in the mainly reproductive organs, but then most of the cells of the body also. At some point, there is a balance in the production of hormone and the amount of receptors. Initially, what happens is a period of adaptation or adjustment, and that's true that sometimes Apparently, there's more relative amount of hormone, but then it quickly finds its balance that will be carried through the lifetime. But it's true that that has a, and it depends, the response depends on different person. Uh, some people react with excessive acne, for instance, and the acne is a response to testosterone. And that's, a, and that's like, a, like a response from all the testosterone. Exactly. Yeah, it happens in the opposite way. When we are reaching older ages, like right before menopause, for instance, the amount of estrogen starts to decline. But then the organs try to compensate that increase in the number of receptors. It's an upregulation. But at some point, there will be no hormone, and also the, the cells of the ovary, let's say, they will not produce more receptors either. And menopause happens. Yeah, that's, those are examples of how this occurs sometimes. Okay, 10 minute break.
roster, finished sending the roster. Someone can bring it here. Okay, I'm actually on the wait list. Um, number two on it. I think I'll be able to get into the class. Uh, only if there are openings. Yeah, and we have to check that at the end of the class when everyone signs and making sure that everyone is here. If there's a no show, you, you can be at it. Yeah. Yes, we'll wait until. You have lab today? Yeah, I love it. Oh, you are on the wait list for today, lab, yeah. for Tuesday. Yeah. yeah, we can check at the beginning of the lab. Okay. Yeah. Hypothalamus, this is the link, nervous system and endocrine system. 
Hypothalamus is nervous system, so it receives connections from many different places. The thalamus, which is, if you remember, that is a relay station for the sensory, somatosensory system, meaning all sensations of the body, they arrive to the thalamus first, and from the thalamus goes to the cortex. But the thalamus isn't the diencephalon, and it has connections with the hypothalamus. And in that way, we see the relationship between the nervous system and the endocrine system. RAS, that stands for Reticular Activating System. Limbic system, emotions. It's well known that, especially in female, that they may have periods of amenorrhea or missing periods because of stress. That's a good example of connection or influence of the nervous system on the endocrine system. Because the menstrual cycle is controlled and regulated by different hormones. And if there is a problem in this way, the amount of hormones may be different and that will, that will alter the menstrual period. The synchronization that sometimes we see, especially in roommates, that at some point they describe that, that they have the period almost in the same time of the, the same day of the month after living for two or more months together. That's another example of influence of the nervous system on the endocrine system. So the hypothalamus is part of the nervous system, but there are some, and I think we, we describe quickly when we get to nervous, we study nervous system, we describe the hypothalamus quickly, but there are many groups of neurons in the hypothalamus. And remember the groups of neurons in the nervous system are called nuclei. Well, there are many nuclei in the hypothalamus and some of them, some of those neurons actually control the pituitary gland. They have connections with the pituitary gland. Pituitary gland is also known as hypophysis. You can use either one, pituitary gland or hypothesis. Pituitary gland is hanging from the hypothalamus. There is sort of like a stalk or stem. That's, that, 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 that's called infundibulum, like the stem of the pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland is divided in two portions or two parts, an anterior and posterior. The anterior is also called adenohypophysis. Prefix adeno stands for gland. So this is the glandular part, the glandular part of the pituitary gland. And the posterior pituitary gland is called neurohypophysis. Because as we will see, the neurohypophysis is practically an extension of the hypothalamus. It is nervous system. And we'll see that today in the lab, when you see this under the microscope. The neurohypophysis or posterior hypophysis, it looks like a nervous system. It looks like white matter. It is actually white matter. 75% of the gland is anterior pituitary gland. And the cells look completely different. You will see that in the lab. Here we see uh, the hypothalamus and that stalk that connects to the pituitary gland and the pituitary gland with the two portions, anterior and posterior. And if you notice the color, the yellow color, 
used for the hypothalamus is the same color that is used for the posterior pituitary gland, meaning that it's nervous tissue. That's why it's called neurohypothesis. Pituitary gland is located in the cella torsica. Which bone is that? Which bone is that? Cella torsica. Sphenoid. That's one of the things, and that's a good sign. If you remember that from 48, that's a good sign. That means that you remember many things from the 48, B, and C. That's one of the important things that you have to remember and keep in your mind for the future. Like, if you don't remember the, where the deltoid tuberosity is, or where the radial tuberosity is, well, you can live with that, no problem. But if you don't remember where the cella torsica is, the sphenoid bone, you will see patients, if you do nursing, you will see patients with tumors in the pituitary, pituitary gland, and you'll see, you will hear that bone, sphenoid bone, cella torsica. And if someone asks you what, what bone is that, you say sphenoid, whoa, yeah, that's, you know, you know your anatomy. You don't have to remember all the anatomy, you have to remember some clue things. So more about the hypothesis or pituitary gland here. Adenohypothesis and neurohypothesis, the infundibulum, that's the stalk that connects both. The optic chiasm is anterior to this. That crossing over of the optic nerve. People with tumors of the pituitary gland, they have problems of vision. Because tumor grows and it starts compressing the optic chiasm, which is the optic nerve. And they don't have problems with vision. What adenohypophysis sometimes is described as having some specific areas of portions called partuberalis, intermedia, distalis. Again, if you remember that's adenohypophysis, it's fine. Neurohypophysis, infundibular stock, pars nervosa. Most important thing is you remember, neurohypophysis is nervous, is hypothalamus, it's an extension of the hypothalamus. And here's the sphenoid bone. Here you have it, cella torsica of sphenoid bone. What is hypophyseal portal system? First, we need to know what a portal system is. In 40B, I think we described this a little bit. Portal system. Normally, we have a blood vessel. The artery. And then the artery will divide many branches, many branches, many branches, and it will turn into the smallest capillary blood vessels. Then, let's see if this blue works. These capillary blood vessels, they get together again, and now we have a vein. Circulatory system, we did that in 40B. Arteries, capillary vessels, and veins. A portal system shows this characteristic. We have the artery, capillary blood vessels, a vein, and then another capillary blood vessel, and then another vein. That's the difference. This is a portal system. 
two capillary blood vessels on the way. And this is what we find here in the hypophysis of the pituitary gland. We have this superior artery, and then you see how it divides in many branches, capillary blood vessels, and then we have the venous side in blue, but then we have these veins, this vein that connect to a second capillary blood vessel here, and then another vein leaving this. This is hypophyseal portals. And what is this for? What is the usefulness of this? Is that things that are produced up here in the hypothalamus from these two nuclei, neurons, they release the product up here and then it's brought by the blood to the anterior pituitary gland and then released to other parts and then to the body. So, meaning that the hypothalamus produces hormones also that control the pituitary gland. And that's how these hormones reach the pituitary gland by the hypophyseal portal system. We have another portal system in the liver also. We'll study that in the digestive system. Okay, adenohypophysis, anterior pituitary gland, or adenohypophysis. It's connected to the hypothalamus by the blood vessels of the hypophyseal portal system. We described that in the previous slides, from one capillary network to a portal vein and then to a second capillary network. And then to the venous side and to the circulation back to the heart and so on. And here is how we see this, hypothalamic neurosecretory cells, cells that in the hypothalamus that produce hormones that will control the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland used to be called the master gland, and it's actually called the master gland, but actually the master is not the pituitary gland. The master is even higher, it's the hypothalamus, the one that produces hormones that stimulates the pituitary gland, and then the pituitary gland stimulates other hormones, other glands. What are the hormones that the pituitary gland produces? This is a long list of hormones. There are two related to the posterior pituitary gland, and they are ADH. The main target is the kidney. Oxytocin, the target are mammary glands, cells from the mammary glands and uterus. And from the anterior pituitary gland, we have all these hormones, ACTH for adrenal gland, cortex specifically, growth hormone called GH, MSH, melanocyte stimulating hormone. Melanocytes, remember melanocytes in the stratum basal of the epidermis that gives the color to the skin? Well, there's a hormone that controls their function. TSH for the thyroid gland. And a group of hormones called gonadotropins, including FSH, LH for ovaries and testes. So that's the reason why it was called initially when it was described as the master gland, because it controls many other glands. Yeah, that's true. 
Well, there's another one here. Hypothalamus that will control the pituitary gland. And that's the reason why we call axis. Remember when I show you the axis, hypothalamus, hypophysis, or pituitary gland. Because it goes like step by step, like a cascade. There are five types of cells in the pituitary gland or adenohypophysis, anterior pituitary gland. Five different types of cells that secrete up to seven different types of hormones. And they are named according to the type of secretion, somatotroph, tyrotrophic cells, gonadotrophic cells, lactotrophic cells, corticotrophic cells. How to differentiate it? Well, this is done in histology with different types of stainings. Um, we don't have those types of stainings or slides stained like this, so this is just referential information. We're going to see the cells of the adenohypophysis, but to differentiate all these five types of cells, we need special stainings uh, to see the detail of them. This is what we're going to see in the lab. The anterior pituitary gland or adenohypophysis looks individual cells, more purple, more pink, and the posterior pituitary gland, you clearly see the, the limits. The posterior pituitary gland looks more homogeneous. You don't get to see many individual cells. You, you see like the spinal cord, if you remember spinal cord, white matter, the white matter, just fibers, axons. So that, that's what the posterior pituitary gland is. It's just a bunch of axons. This one shows much better. This is a transverse section. So you see uh, all of this is the anterior pituitary gland and the posterior pituitary gland or neurohypophysis. The color is different. It's very different. If you see more detail view, then you get to see these cells of the adenohypophysis anterior pituitary gland. And here you can differentiate at least two types of cells. You can see this in the lab. The staining helps to differentiate these two types of cells. Of course, under the 400 magnification. Basophil and acidophil cells, or basophilic, acidophilic cells. The acidophilic cells, they look more red. Basophilic look more purple. Um, and um, it depends on the type of hormone that they produce. Acidophilic cells usually are related to growth hormone, growth hormone prolactin, and the basophilic, the other hormones. That's a, a good classification of these uh, cells, just in two colors. Special stains have to be used to differentiate the five different types of cells. And that's the end. Questions, comments? Okay, we have a lab with the Tuesday group, 5.30.